0: Well, Let's get started folks. Uh, welcome everyone to the Rebel Madman Radio Show here at RBN and please pardon our faux pas here of we kind of messed up uh, and uh, got a recording of a previous show but uh, we're all set to go. I've got two wonderful gentlemen with me today which it has been my good fortune to uh, make their acquaintance uh, on social media. And we have never met face to face, but we have had some very interesting interchanges. And uh, so what I would like to do here, uh, first of all, I would like to introduce uh, my uh, friends as, uh, you know, Paul and Mark. And uh, let's uh, do a double check here with the uh, technical difficulties we have. Can both you gentlemen hear me?
1: Paul here. Yes, I can.
0: Okay, Mark, can you hear us? Wow. Well, okay, Paul, uh we'll try to get uh Mark worked in here. So, Paul, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, please sir?
1: I'd be glad to, and thank you so much, Mike, uh, for this uh honor and opportunity. Uh, you know, I spent a few day, a few weeks and months over the last few months of getting to know you, you know, through our chats and also through your radio program. So uh, I cannot believe that uh, we are here live with you. So as a quick introduction, yeah, my name is Paul Pario. I'm originally from India. I grew up in the Middle East because that's where my parents um, temporarily migrated to for work. I, I did college back in India and then I came to Chicago in 2004. So I've been in the U.S. for 20 years now. I came initially for my graduate studies uh, to get my Ph.D. in computer science. And uh, following that, moved around a bit for work. Uh, I, I think I would say the biggest blessing of the last 10 years of my life is the, the blessing of meeting my wife and uh, you know being married to her, having children, and raising a family with her. Uh, so I've been 10 years married with my wife, Catherine and you know uh i would say something interesting and relevant to the show is sort of the political awakening uh, of my own life when i first came to the us i was 21 years old and i would say that was the first time i started thinking about politics in a more intentional way and how it relates to my christian faith and just by default um you know without thinking too much i became you know i i knew i was pro life and so by just by virtue of that i became an active part of the Republican or conservative movement for a few years there. Following that, uh, it got sucked into the Tea Party movement um, and I began to appreciate concepts of liberty and freedom a little bit more. And long story short, uh, you know as, as sort of the awakening continued um, over the next few years, uh, became what I would call a more uh, arrived at a more principled position on liberty and what uh, Mike frequently refers to as rightful liberty, which I concluded was implicit or implied by the Christian worldview. And uh, there are various names by which that ideology is known as. Maybe simply speaking, you may call it libertarianism or voluntarism. But uh, that's, it. that's kind of where we are, and that's uh, a part of the story of, you know, encountering Mike and his work on history, and especially American history, and how that relates to the ideas we're talking about today so uh, that that's sort of a brief bio so to speak mike okay. well paul thank you so much
0: for that and it's i think it's uh, certainly intriguing and so many people need to learn how the many of us or uh you know I, at least we are many although we may be a minority in this country i'm sure we are but uh, the truth really matters with us and uh, folks uh I hope you'll bear with us. We're trying to get Mark on now. Uh, somehow there's technical difficulties there as well. And uh, so I'm trying to get a, uh, maybe get Mark hooked up by phone. So in the meantime, it'll be Paul and I. And uh, Paul, uh, tell us, tell me just a little bit about, I know you have made a transgression, I, I wouldn't call it transgression, a movement, I'm sorry, a movement from, being a conservative to a libertarian to an anarchist. Could you, right. could you kind of explain to people what that journey was like and what prompted you to move from one to the other?
1: Yeah, definitely. So there are a variety of, uh, let's say, reasons or trains of thought uh, along that journey. But first and foremost, I would say, as a Christian, uh, the idea that life is sacred and that we all human life is imprinted with the image of God and carries that dignity uh you know led to the led very quickly to this idea that we may not play God in the lives of others in other words what every man has a right and duty toward is to steward that which God has given that man or woman rightfully and and in sort of a, you know, to just phrase this in just Christian terms, it's a simple idea that one may not steal from an, from another. You know, the, 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 the sort of the Ten Commandments talks about thou shalt not steal. So we go from this idea that life is sacred, and which includes uh, every man's life, their own body, and their own justly acquired possessions, which they may have acquired through work or through trade, belongs to them. And so very quickly we come from that to this understanding that everything that is known as government today in the modern world, uh, you know, we may call it electoral democracy or perhaps uh, maybe what one may think of as the best example of that, you know, you you don't even need to think of dictatorships or things like that. You may think of, let's say, a constitutional republic, such as what the U.S. uh, in some senses ought to have been. Even that, Violates the moral law in its fundamental premises, and for example, you know, there was a time, Mike, when I was a huge constitutional conservative, and you know, I went to university in Chicago, and I I told, I've given the story to Mark, where I would stand outside the behavioral sciences department for a few years, and during the Obama years, and hand out pocket constitutions because I, at that point in my youth, in in my in the indiscretion of my youth, I thought the Constitution. Uh, I, or I, I believe that that was, had to do something with liberty. But anyway, if you look at it, when, when I started to understand the Constitution and sort of not even the history, but just what it says in things like, let's say, the Article 1, Section 8, it very clearly lays out that there could exist a class of men that need not obey the law, that are, that are not uh, obligated to the moral law, and that they may enjoy special permissions or special privileges to violate the moral law. And then I realized, well, this is the premise of any government, uh, and it's worse outside the so-called constitution, because at least the constitution pays lip service to things that are written on the Bill of Rights. So, and so very quickly, we, we went, uh, I, or my, my, in my mind I went from, yes, life is sacred, the moral law is objective and absolute, and no human being may enjoy a privilege to violate it for any reason, that led to the conclusion, obviously, that since every government is predicated on the violation of the moral law, no government is valid or morally valid or legitimate for a Christian who is serious about their faith and who is serious about the Christian ethic. And so this was a maybe the journey, I would say, from political conservatism yeah. to libertarianism. That took about five years, and then libertarianism to... What you may call as anarchism uh, took another two or three years, so so maybe roughly a decade. uh, Yeah, so that's kind of a a summary there, Mike.
0: Okay, well, Paul, very well said, and you know, I think all of us have made this uh, uh, this movement. You know, in my life, I was uh, you know actually worked in the oxymoronic field of uh, government intelligence, and there was a time that. I was 100% in on it. I mean, I believed in this country. I spent time in the USS military. I was ready to give my life for this country. And I had sworn an oath to a constitution. And then I realized that uh, if I swore an oath to a constitution, I was probably the only one. (laughs) You know, the government wasn't following it which I saw very quickly, and I began to understand. And then I think it was possibly around 1980 to 1982, somewhere in that time frame, that I realized, you know, we are told that our government intelligence agencies are out there to protect us from our enemies. Well, suddenly I saw the uh, intelligence agencies focusing more on american citizens than they were on the supposed evil people in the rest of the world and that troubled me and so i went in and i made a uh, an appeal to my supervisor and i said are, are we now and now at this point in our history are the american people the number one enemy of the u.s government and he said look it's really simple have you ever been driving down, riding down the road in the back seat of a car at 70 miles an hour and i said yes i have and he said did you have any say so about which way the car went and i said no sir and he said well that's where you are now gaddy so three days later i submitted my retire i uh, submitted my not retirement but i submitted my resignation—and. Uh, you know, very costly. I'd spent some years there. i had would have had a nice retirement, but i I couldn't my morality would not let me continue, Paul. and uh, so uh, I'm trying to get a number here for Mark. Can you tell us a little bit, Paul, while I'm working on this? Can you tell us a little bit about who were your major motivators when you moved from a constitutional conservative to a libertarian? and then what helped you move who, perhaps, maybe you can point to some individuals. I know Murray Rothbard was big with me, uh, but uh, are there others there that you see that you could tell us about why I try to get Mark hooked up here, please, sir? Definitely,
1: definitely, yeah. So, you know, and then this again goes back to 2004, 2005, when I I came to the United States and started my political awakening, uh, which ironically, when I look back in those days, uh, in the same breath, I, I could say things like I am pro-life and uh, you know opposed to abortion. But in the same breath, I would say things like, "Yes, George Bush should be able to uh, glass or, or you know destroy Iran if he wants to," and things like that. And never realizing the inconsistencies in my viewpoint here. But uh, moving forward a few years, I think the Tea Party, uh, let's say, revolution of two thousand seven through two thousand nine during the financial crisis, really opened my eyes to this idea that maybe government shouldn't be doing uh, everything that it's doing at the very, for the very least reason that most of these things are not even formally authorized to it in the Constitution. And keep in mind that in those days, I still thought of the U.S. Constitution as at least a, part, an, a valid document and that government should limit itself to it. And in those days... The main figure who I was challenged by would be Ron Paul and people like Ron Paul in his universe. Uh, So yeah, so in a sense, I was part of the Ron Paul movement, or or, or without realizing that um, necessarily. And there was a few years when I went back and forth between, well, you know, political libertarianism uh, to. Uh, let's say mainstream conservative uh, political conservatism and back and forth because I was again, I wasn't logically consistent. I was imagining, well, I like liberty, but I also like social conservative values. So, what do I do? And it's only a few years later that I realized that social conservative values or traditional conservative values do not have a political home in the Republican Party or in, or in the political conservative movement. Generally, if one is a logical and consistent social or traditional conservative, the political expression of that or the consistent political expression of that idea is essentially absolute liberty, absolute rightful liberty for every man created in the image of God. And that actually, ironically, you know, now I understand this to be consistent and necessary for a Christian. And in fact, there's a whole movement called Christian anarchism that highlights that. But ironically or interestingly, I came to this conclusion without meeting a single self-declared Christian anarchist. the the person or the person who who I would say most influenced me from my transition to li- from libertarianism to anarchism uh, was a person called Larkin Rose, who is a author as well as a somewhat well-known tax resistor. But I think most. Uh, Importantly, or more significantly, he was able to describe the moral flaws in any sort of political approach to uh, liberty, to restoring liberty, or preserving liberty, or gaining liberty in the first place. And I would say that once I encountered those ideas, I, I could not find a way to escape that it, from the from the perspective that I'm like, if I am a Christian. And if I have to be consistent about my ethic, the Christian ethic is indeed anarchist. Uh, you know, especially as Larkin Rose expounded it. Uh, you know, interestingly, he doesn't claim to be a Christian himself. And I thought, okay, so I'm this interesting, odd position—position position of uh, concluding something that all Christians must conclude. However, the vast milieu of you know Christians of any tradition in the U.S. or the worldwide haven't yet concluded that. And I thought I was sort of unique or isolated or alone as a Christian anarchist with no one else to fellowship with. And it was only years later from that realization that I realized that there is actually a Christian anarchist movement in the U.S. and around the world, uh, which I had the joy of then encountering years after my transition from libertarianism to anarchism. So, yeah, so (laughs) there's a long answer, but the brief summary is Ron Paul helped me go from conservatism to libertarianism, and then Larkin Rose later assisted by um, Robert Higgs and Hoppe, Rothbard, etc., but mainly right. and, um, helped me move from libertarianism to anarchism.
0: Oh, fantastic, Paul. Great story there, and a lot of good detail. Uh, Mark, can you hear us now, sir? I sure can,
2: brother. How are you guys doing?
0: Oh, boy, it's great to hear your voice, brother. Uh And... We had uh, Paul uh, jump in here and kind of give us his yep. background story. You have a heck of a story, there, brother. So, <laughs> would you tell the folks about your transition, please? Even up to up to where you are now with the majority of your family.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a journey, uh, and and I, I heard Paul's, and Paul and I have caught up before on uh, on the phone, and I've gotten to know him well, like I've gotten to know you, Mike, and and. Boy, what a blessing it is to have you two guys in my life, and uh, because we all kind of have journeys, maybe perhaps not the exact same journey, but but journeys nevertheless to the same point. And mine really began not in any um, in any plausible way. I used to work on Capitol Hill for a couple different members of Congress. A guy named uh, George Wortley from upstate New York. Uh, he was uh, elected back in the early '80s uh, during the Reagan Revolution, supposedly. And I went into Congress with him. From there, I went over to a gentleman by the name of Richard Baker. Uh, He ended up chairing the banking committee, which then became the Financial Services Committee. So working in Congress, I kind of had a bird's-eye view of how this machine worked. But I I must admit uh, that my character wasn't in shape enough to detect what was wrong with it. In fact, this is probably one of the strongest reasons – I now rage such a war against the notion of government because I was in it. I examined my own character, saw the reason why I was in it, and it was for the thirst of power, the ability to control people, the ability to write legislation that would then dictate behaviors by large numbers of people. There was a certain enjoyment about that. Now, I don't think I would have sat there and, you know, wring my hands and said, ha, 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 I'm going to be able to get these, these constituents, you know, in my legislative district. But the net result is that, you know, we, we I don't think anybody up there would talk as frankly about the citizens or constituents as their actions betrayed what they really thought. But it wasn't too far under the surface either. In fact, one of my colleagues in the House, um, a legislative assistant in another office, uh, got fired because... He circulated a letter in his office, a response to a constituent, that was degrading, condescending, mocking of the constituent's question. Unfortunately, when he hit send, he thinking he was sending it to a fellow aide, he sent it to the local press, who got the letter, and proceeded to print it in the newspaper the next day in that congressman's district. And you can imagine the congressman had no choice but to fire this fellow. But so lurking just under the surface of, Pretty much everybody working up there was this kind of disdain or uh, elitism as we thought about constituents, and that that kind of planted the first seed. As a Christian, that something was wildly wrong with my thinking, but I didn't pursue it because the desire for prestige and power and advancement was just too strong. And uh, and and I, and I got to tell you, I'm, I I, I say all this with a bit of shame and humility, but I also want to be frank about it because I think the average person doesn't really understand how Congress works and how government works. These are not actually servants of the people. I was not a servant of the people. Um, I was hired to do a job to keep the congressman in office. And pretty much everybody up there, uh, that's their primary job is to keep your congressman or your or the senator you're working for and really Congressman's a misnomer it's a member of congress but to keep them in positions of power because that's how i got paid um so it's a it's a really very dirty kind of business and yet everybody up there uh and if they're honest and i happen to just become an honest person um will admit that there's a certain um uh pettiness to being up there well then, by God's grace, I'll just assign it to that. I married my lovely bride, and if anyone knows anything like you've been there before, if you know anything about um, Washington, D.C., the prestige is very high, but the pay is very low. It's slave labor when you initially start up there. And, and, and so being married, and my wife was, and I were pregnant with our first child just after our honeymoon, and um, I could no longer provide for my family. Uh, in washington dc on a uh, senior legislative assistant salary and so i decided to go the route of business but always stayed connected connected with politics because you know once you kind of taste of that world it's hard to let go of that it really is um very addictive and very kind of gravitational and so i uh proceeded into business and but stayed very connected to politics I promised my wife at that point that I really wouldn't re-engage until all of my children were older and um, and we homeschooled all four of our children and but yet there was still this lingering thought uh, something wrong both with me but also wrong with the with the um, this entity and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. and then came 2008 we all remember that and We had all these images of, you know, Nancy Pelosi on, or uh, Secretary Paulson on his knee begging Nancy Pelosi to pass, you know, the bank bailout. And and everything went crazy in 2008. I always knew this thing would come to some head. But like most people, I didn't know that it was going to be, you, you can never predict the time it's going to happen. But sure enough, in 2008, we got the first real evidence that this whole thing was a scam, uh, but even then, I was still kind of looking for ways to work within the system and maybe re- reform the system. And so back in 2008, I became very enamored with the whole idea of nullification, the whole process by which supposedly the states could tell the um, the U.S. government to stop doing certain things. And, and you know, in a very loose theory, they, they can, but they never will. There's no incentive for them ever to say no to the federal government, except in the most uh, you know, in, in the most minimal ways that really produced nothing. So I kind of got involved in the delegation when we started the radio program in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and really that was, you know, kind of my shtick, if you will. And so I spent a lot of time going around to different conferences and speaking on this and, and really kind of honing my notion, that this notion that, that the people were in power, and if they worked through their states, the states could tell the federal government to stop, and yada, 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 yada. uh, But also, always living with this, I think Paul kind of dealt with it as well. Mike, you have, Will, this cognitive dissonance that this wasn't going to work. It seemed like it could work, but there was still this nagging sense of something is wildly wrong here. I'm still missing some part of this puzzle. And so, as you can imagine, none of the nullification efforts really ever worked Uh, in Oklahoma here. We nullified real ID. Well, guess what? You know, when you get your driver's license here in Oklahoma, you're getting your biometric data, you know, assembled for you when you go get your license. So real ID uh, wasn't really stopped here. And, And then, you know, I got involved in Obamacare and all that. And of course, that was not nullified. And so there was always this hope that things could be nullified, but the system really would not permit it. And then that led me down this real journey to where I am now, beginning beginning to examine, I kind of repented of my character weaknesses related to, you know, uh, wanting to control other people's lives through this thing called government. I really had to do some self-examination there, what was wrong with me. And by God's grace, you know, I came out the other end realizing what was wrong with me, and it's, just the fallen nature of man, it happened to infect me in a way that I took a kind of pleasure in thinking of being able to control people, not some macabre kind of way, but just the elitism that comes with that thinking. And so once you begin down that road, you begin to question why you believe what you believe. And if you're really honest about it, you're going to run into this notion about government. And thinking about government and then trying to frame it in a way that justifies its existence but never really being able to intellectually or honestly do it. Because because government has this thing called monopoly on force. And I think Paul framed it there at the end of his comments very well.
0: Hold on hold As on a second, th- Mark, we got a break coming up. We'll be back on the other side.
3: True. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth.
0: Hi, Tom Bolton for Ease Off. I know so many of you are finding our easy 4 carcass drop and lift an essential tool for your meat processing operation. But today, I want to spotlight four of our new products. First, are right height hog cradles with steel or aluminum frames. Our customers love this back-saving innovation that enhances sanitation and speeds production. Next, our beef cradles with stainless steel or aluminum frames eliminate rust and corrosion. We hope you'll compare our quality and prices for this essential part of your processing line. Our cradles are especially effective when used with our Power Skinner. And finally, our hook tumbler will keep your hooks clean and polished. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too.
4: EaseOff, LLC. 417-932-6419.
3: Do you begin to smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story. It's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday. Bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? (laughs) Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a 100 years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. Will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich... Can you survive the stock market tanks? Look, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge and are prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth or call me, Jeffrey Bennett. That's six oh two seven nine nine eight two one four. Or by email at Kettlemoraine Ltd at Cox.net for private consultation. Once again our phone number six oh two seven nine nine eight two one four. It's almost Friday.
0: my. The night they drove old Dixie down. Welcome back, folks, to the Rebel Man radio program here on Republic Broadcasting Network. And before we jump back and uh, let Mark uh, tell us more about his transition, uh, I just want to ask you, please, if you can, in any way possible, within your means, support RBN. It is one of the last bastions of free speech that we have. And when free speech is gone, freedom is gone. So I would ask that you do that. Mark, are you ready to continue, sir? Sorry for the interruption.
2: Oh, no problem at all, brother. No problem at all. Yeah, indeed I am. So uh, just to kind of wrap up my story there, I, I, I didn't quite have the same journey as Paul did going through Ron Paul, and, and which a lot of people do. However, we did intersect at this fellow named Lark, Larkin Rose. And uh, who began to make these really profoundly strong moral arguments against the very notion of government. Once you head down that road, the only end is you cannot be a moral person and endorse the idea of government. And that's where I eventually ended up. And which was, I suspect all three of us would agree, is extremely liberating, extremely free. Because suddenly I don't have to carry baggage for something that is obviously immoral. Because this comes back to the notion that government has a perceived legitimate use of force. And I really want to emphasize the word legitimate. That is probably what freed my mind more than anything. Was I had somehow been conditioned, brainwashed, whatever you want to call it. I had somehow come to believe over my life, that government is a legitimate entity that possesses a legitimate use of force up to and including murder to compel behavior. Well, once you think of government that way, to maintain any semblance of morality, and even for me and the three of us as Christians, we have to reject that notion like we cannot accept it. Well, and this is where, you know, I finally arrived at and abandoned the very notion that we can have government and call ourselves moral people. Um, So my journey went from conservative, constitutional conservative, uh, probably to minarchism for a little bit of time, trying to justify that we need to have courts and and police um, to libertarianism for a few moments, and once you hit libertarianism, you're you're almost inevitably going to end up in an- anarchism. And so now I call myself an anarchist, perhaps voluntarist, and I think as a Christian, it is like as Paul was mentioning, the most consistent um, approach to society and community that a Christian can hold, uh, notwithstanding the fact God mentions government and acknowledges government throughout the pages of scripture him acknowledging government does not mean he endorses it and this is probably some of the the difficulties Christians have dealing with this idea of government and the same for people that are non-christians that but would hold to some kind of transcendent morality uh, they they're so familiar with this notion of government and think it's always existed that um, you know, it's hard to shake it from your mind, and I I suspect that's probably all three of our stories, right? It, it, at some point, you confront
0: it, but it's actually quite difficult to shake it from your mind, right? It's not easy. It, it is not yeah. easy. Folks, if you're looking for an easy path, this isn't it, I promise yeah. you, because <laughs> I remember, guys, if I may interject, and then I want to jump Paul back in here, I remember that early 1980s when i had finished my uh, assigned duties uh on research at the uh you know the uh, national archives and uh i went to up and you know i've always been kind of a history guy and i went mm-hmm. up and asked the uh attendant there if they had anything on you know early uh communications between the founders and so uh they uh <laughs> they gave me some uh letters on microfish and i went and sat down at a console and i started reading these letters and you know uh, i didn't even realize how deep i was into it until the uh, guard tapped me on the shoulder and said we're about to close you need to leave hmm. and uh so i or prepared to leave i mean he was nice it wasn't anything untoward and so i said okay fine i took the Microfish back up to the desk and i said is this real and i'll never forget the lady she looked at me and she said of course it's real and i said well this goes against everything i have ever been taught in my education from high school to college and she said okay (laughs) and i said wait a minute (laughs) i said why have we been lied to all of these years and she she looked me straight in the eyes and she said have you ever lied to anybody, Mr. Gaddy? And mm-hmm. I said, yes, ma'am, I have. Mm-hmm. And she said, why? And that mm-hmm. was my answer. I'll never forget that. Go. So, yeah. uh,
1: Paul, uh, you were going to, uh, uh, there. there's something you wanted to add, sir, please. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is a great discussion already. The thing I wanted to add, Mike, and uh, I've spoken ab- about this at length with Mark before, is... Part of my transition from political conservatism to anarchism now involved a lot of soul-searching, specifically about my involvement with the cultural institutions of political conservatism. But what do I mean by that? Right? And you know, we could talk about prof- the professional uh, Christianity or Evangelicalism, Inc., as some people refer to it now. And uh, Mark has referred to uh, the pro-life movement as well uh, as not necessarily... Uh, being a movement <clears throat> aimed at the thing that it, it is purported to aim at, uh, I, I won't talk about those two. I, I would like to talk about a third thing, namely the whole institution of talk radio, and specifically mm-hmm. conservative talk radio, which you know, which, which precedes uh, the last decade of podcasts by many decades now. And I'm talking about folks like Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, and folks like that. <clears throat> because oh, part, my. Of my, yeah, part of my journey here, as I... Uh, you know, as as sort of a guy uh, new to the U.S. and trying to understand how is it that a country that is known by many, in some senses even outside the U.S. as a Christian country, has such a significant, uh, let's say, anti-Christian population, and not only significant, but politically dominant. In other words, what what is the problem with our side? And by the way, when I say our in this context, this is me 20 years ago, where I am a political conservative. And so a huge part of my life then was essentially all of these conservative talk radio hosts where I would go and and it's only years later that I realized this pattern when I got out of it. You know, the pattern of talk radio, conservative talk radio, is really sort of whining and whimpering and sort of impotently complaining about uh, both the state as well as the left and how, you know, not only is liberty being eroded, but how our culture is being degenerated, et cetera, et cetera. However, this pattern would continue, and the whole show would be complaining without uh, a, a single notion of how we may truly take action against it. It, it was uh, it was almost almost always reduced to, well, that's not constitutional. I mean, this was a frequent screed of, all, of a variety of these talk show hosts. And I would say, I would... Scre- I would Shout along in the car as I drove to work or back from work. I would I would be saying, "Yeah, that's one, you know, Obamacare or, uh, you know, the warrantless surveillance or the wars or the uh, bailouts or any any subject on any matter that came out of D.C. or the states. You know, the the the, the idea sort of these so called cultural leaders of our movement would exhort us, exhort their listeners, and I included myself in that category, to cry and whine and end there and do nothing about it and, and, and sort of go back to illogical slogans like, oh, well, that's not constitutional. The Supreme, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to pass the Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court, so-called conservative justices betrayed us time and again, uh, and, you know, Obamacare is a prominent example, but this shows up in many, many examples, then it would be, well, that's not constitutional. You know, if we just have to, if we just went back to the Constitution, it would protect our liberties And so this illogical uh, sort of cycle (laughs) of the Constitution is clearly not protecting your liberties, and every violation of your liberty is declared to be constitutional by the high priests in the Supreme Court. And so this pattern, uh, it's only, and you know, I'll sort of maybe end with a couple of thoughts about this. I, I escaped this when I did that soul searching and realized this is a huge industry that makes money, On the fact, on the basis that they need an audience that is constantly disillusioned but is never actually free or takes a step in the direction of true freedom and true liberty. And I'm not necessarily even saying that they did this intentionally, but the incentives were such that the vast majority of this uh, talk radio culture uh, was based on this impotent whining and further uh, Continued, you know, served to further that in culture, such that it rendered political conservatism as sort of a, uh, a, a sort of a a sort of a a punching bag, a sort of a perennial loser, so to speak, in the political and cultural wars.
0: Well, Paul, let me ask you: Do you find any correlation between what you just said, and you're spot on, in my opinion? Do you find any correlation with the fact that? Uh, uh, rush Limbaugh last contract paid him a million dollars a week, and that Sean Hannity is worth something over two hundred and fifty million, and Mark Levin is worth over three hundred million
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was not aware of these exact numbers, but i 'm not in the least surprised uh, not in the least surprised there's it is a huge a profitable lucrative market that keeps the problem alive and never really makes progress in culture. Yes,
0: (laughs) absolutely. Mark, your comments on that, sir.
2: Oh, I I totally agree. I I mean, I've seen this up close. Um, There are these perverse incentives to perpetuate the problem and, and, and they target a certain character, um, a certain kind of character. And I happen to have fallen into one of those categories because I, again, going back to my, my, my time on Capitol Hill and my, interest in government. You know, I, I read some research here recently on psychopathologies and, and how large of a percentage of it is uh, is found in a typical Western country. And, and by rough estimates, somewhere around one and a half to four and a half percent of the population suffer from some serious kind of psychopathology and or sociopathology. And so if you look at it that way, another way to say it is 96% 96 of us don't. Well, of those 4% of the population that do, they seem to do a couple of things. They either actually commit outright crimes and will just go rob somebody or rape somebody or murder somebody or do some kind of actual, you know, violation of natural law. That's one percentage of those 4% um, of the population. Another percentage of them seem to go into business and end up selling uh, in, but it's a different kind of control mechanism for them. It still satisfies the pathology they have. And then there's this other percentage of them that tend to go into politics because it satisfies that uh, social pathology for them. And that's the group that I belong to. That's the group that most people that are really rabidly interested At some level, even the participant uh, in politics, that tends to satisfy that or scratch that itch. And so there's these perverse incentives that government presents to us, this, this tantalizing sense of power and control and prestige, and as Paul alluded to, certainly money. When you've got $4 trillion running through Capitol Hill every year, you only need a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that to do very well for yourself. But if you're let's say your incentive isn't money, which isn't the case for all people who work in government, sometimes it's just a cush job and a good salary. We all know how difficult it is to fire anybody from the workforce, the the, the, the federal workforce. It's nearly impossible. Um, so sometimes it's just convenient. You know, I get to make eighty thousand bucks a year and really not do very much. Uh, sometimes it's a access to a career, you know, move for yourself that would then equate into more money. And so you pursue that track. That was the the track I was on. Why was I, as a twenty seven year old, you know, uh, legislative assistant, going out to dinner with the CEO of Exxon? Uh, to a five-star uh, five, car, five star restaurant and seven-course meal because, number one, he wanted something from me, and number two, I wanted something from him. It's just kind of sick quick pro quo. That happens all the time up there. Um, so there's, sometimes people just want women, and that's what they're there for. And so there's all these perverse incentives that draw this tiny portion of the population into the, the grips of... of government, if you will, using that term very loosely. And then there's this group, as Paul alluded to, the the, the professional agitators out there on talk radio, but also at the RNC and at the Heritage Foundation and every other think tank out there, that literally, if they solve problems, would not exist. Now, these people that work there, they have mortgages, they have goals for their children to go to school, they want to buy a new car. They, they survive off of this constant agitation of the two sides. And so when you, but the average citizen, the other 96% of us, we don't think that way. We don't live our lives for the, or well, I should, shouldn't say me. I shouldn't include myself in that group. I'm in the 4% group. Um, they don't live their lives for um, control and power. They just want to go to church or they want to build their family or build their business or play soccer with their kids and, go fishing and take a vacation and things like that. It's not to say their peers a the wind-driven snow, but they're, they're, they don't appear to be suffering from the same things a small segment of us of, us, uh, of us struggle with. And so even to remove the perverse incentives that are built into these man-made constructs called government would be a big step toward... Um, Uh, you know, freeing ourselves from the control of these sociopaths that get control of this thing called man-made government. But in order to do that, we've got to do kind of what we're doing here in the radio show today. We've got to diagnose what the real problem is, because Rush Limbaugh did make a bunch of money, literally. Mike and Paul, think about this. Talking three hours a day on the radio. That was something I started back in 2008. I thought I was going to have a career. I was on Fox News and on CNN and all I, My career trajectory was looking like it was going because I had a decent ability on the radio. I could talk for three hours. But think about that. Limbaugh, you know, making $400, $400, $400 million in his last contract to talk for three hours and agitate. Agitate. That's what they're doing. And so until we have these fundamental conversations about the very nature of these man-made things called government. I don't see any way to fix any of this because there's too many perverse incentives.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more, Mark, and you're very well on the point. And, uh, both you gentlemen have brought me to a point here that I would like to get into. We're probably going to hit the music at the top of the hour before we, uh, complete it. I'm sure. But, uh, Paul, would you please uh, inform the uh, listeners what it was that was the that sudden spark that hit you
1: that told you that the Constitution was not what you had been taught it was? Yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, maybe it was a series of small sparks. There was okay. a pr- practical aspect of it, which was this repeated cycle of that's not, you know, shouting. That's not something's not constitutional, and yet it happens anyway. And um, and and that that's almost the end of the story. It's almost as if it's it's a given that okay, well, I guess now IRS gets to or you know, I guess now the N S A can listen in on us, or the F B I can uh, make up fake uh, you know <clears throat> charges against conservatives, and that's just the way life is. And, and so then this idea that well, the Constitution limits government and protects liberties was eminently not true in a practical sense, but I think those series of sparks was lit into a fire by, by, when I started to read not only a little bit about the history but, main, but the Constitution directly. Now for the longest time, I would associate the Bill of Rights only with what the Constitution was and not really get into the details of the articles. But once I got into the details, I understood that what it is proposing to create and legitimize is a group of people who would enjoy an exemption to the moral law. The moral law, I started to understand, applies to all men objectively, but the Constitution explicitly states, for example, in Article 1, Section 8, that this group called government is exempt, and they get the, get the right, which actually does not exist as a right in, in nature, to steal from you, and to determine what is good, the, clause, the phrase used in that uh, section is general welfare, a very intentionally, conveniently ambiguous phrase that enables those in power to determine what good is and then steal anything that they like from you in order to accomplish their vision of, of the good. And so this all sort of came to a head, and that's what led me to abandon this completely.
0: Hmm. Uh, Very interesting, and uh, how you correlated moral law with the violation of moral law with our written Constitution. And yet, I was taught from a very early age, as I'm sure you were as well, Mark, that this Constitution was inspired by God. (laughs) And so, you know, that was that was, uh, you know, I remember that being told to me in school. I remember it being told to me in church. I remember it being told to me in several different locations. Oh, this Constitution was inspired by God. But later, and I'm going to try to get this in before the break, and then we want to get your side here, Mark. But the thing I remember was, you know, as a Christian, I studied history. I loved history. And uh, suddenly I was reading this guy named Patrick Henry. And then all of the letters that I was seeing among the founders where they talked about he was the most devout Christian of the era. And so the simple question that came to my mind was simply this. If Patrick Henry was the most devout Christian of the era... And he was one of the people who fought hardest against the ratification of the Constitution. How does this compute? How do I put these two things together? How do I take the most devout Christian, named so by his fellow uh, founders, if you will, I hate that word, but by these founders, and he was the most devout Christian. And then when I saw a letter from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison in 1784 stating oh we should pray fervently or devoutly i'm sorry we should pray devoutly for the death of patrick henry <laughs> and all of a sudden i'm going what you know so that was kind of my awakening and like i said gentlemen we may have about two minutes left here so mark you want to get started and then when the music starts we'll uh, we'll uh, head over to the other side
2: Absolutely, yes, yeah, sure, and this this becomes the uh, you know one of these fundamental questions because we were all raised to have such uh, respect and perhaps elevated to nearly a sacred document. This this U.S. Constitution and you revere it, and within the Christian community, my goodness gracious, there really is serious discussion about it coming from a divine nature, and boy, to work through all that. Um, is it, quite challenging, because as Christians, we're kind of people of story. And so we're very vulnerable to hearing stories. And boy, can some of these guys tell some stories, as I used to. Uh, but at some point, how many more times can we say something isn't constitutional, but then it occurs? You know, there's this cognitive dissonance you have to grow, not just live with, but you almost have to become comfortable with, If you're going to maintain a position of supporting the constitution, because as we will talk in the next hour, you can go all the way back to the the judiciary act of 1789 and see that there was no such thing as a limited government back then. You know, 10 months after the ratification, this thing has gone off the wheel because it was designed to go off the wheel. Well, then you have serious problems with it being of divine nature. And yet, this is one of the obstacles those of us who work with other people trying to persuade them away from a certain kind of devotion to this sacred document run into. They've been told so many stories, usually just about a quarter of the story, not even half the story about what this thing really is. And so I look forward to our conversation going forward here to describe really it because it created something that has brought about untold levels of evil that we just have to confront and deal with. you know we are at a moment in history where we're gonna either step up or just run away.
0: Well here comes the music guys we'll be back on the flip side and here's one of my favorites, Freebird.
3: food storage in the rotating sponsors banners to support rbn
4: simply clean foods do it today
3: you're listening to the republic broadcasting
2: network because you can handle the truth